Hey everyone, this is Christopher Luxon, the former CEO of Air New Zealand. This is John Lee Dumas, the founder and host of Entrepreneurs on Fire. This is Tracy Ibarra. I'm an executive solutions at Dell Technologies. This is Travis Chappell, founder of Build Your Network. If you are wanting to learn how to embrace change, to navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast with my good friend, my very good friend, Dennis Giannoutsos. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsos. Hey, whereabouts in the world are you today? I am in Austin, Texas. Are you? Austin? Oh, I love Texas. I think Texas is a place that I would like. If I wanted to go to the US to live, it would be Texas. Yeah, just avoid the summer. Yeah, it's really hot. It was a brutal one this year. Yeah, it's really, really hot. Hey, yeah, cool. Hey, look, I've given the listeners a little bit of an introduction to you and your background. Tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, I am... An IT guy. That's just basically what I call myself. I've been a technology passionate person since I got my first computer when I was somewhere around 10 years old. It was an old IBM 286. And I just fell in love with technology. And I've always had some sort of role ever since interacting with people and helping them use technology in some way or fashion. And eventually I started a consulting firm that basically works with small emerging companies or investment firms and helps them leverage technology to grow their businesses. Mm, very good. And I understand that you managed to get well, disassemble and also reassemble computers from an old Black & Decker office. Is that right? Yeah, I grew up poor and my mom worked a couple different jobs all at once. And one of them was a receptionist or I'm sorry, an assistant at Black & Decker in the Midwest. And when they closed that branch down, she had built such great rapport with the executives that they gave her a lot of the computers. And I think they intended for her to go and sell them on the secondary market because they were worth several thousand dollars back then. And very few people, if anyone had a home computer at that time, this would have been like early 90s, very, very early 90s. And she just brought them home, didn't know what to do with them. And so I just started taking them apart and putting them back together. And I just became fascinated with the world behind the computer, as somebody who was always passionate about building things, it was like an infinite way to just keep building and creating things. And it cost nothing. Like once you're up and running, you could write programs all day long. You didn't need to go buy materials. You didn't have to go to the hobby store. You didn't have to buy a baseball bat and a glove. So it was like, for somebody that didn't have a lot of money growing up, it was like an infinite playground for me. And I just immediately fell in love with it. Oh, good on you. And, and I understand that you, you launched is which is the, really the organization that you're the founder of, about five years ago, and it's grown to about $36 million in annual revenue, and you've got about 125 employees in seven different offices across the U.S. Yeah, it's like 132 now, today, oh, wow. but it's, yeah, we're still hiring and growing pretty rapidly despite the, the economic uncertainty, but yeah, I, I guess I rebooted it about five years ago. You know, it was originally a stodgy old consulting firm where it was like maybe five of us and we were doing professional services the old fashioned way, which was go and find the best talent you can, 
hire them, assign clients and just do everything by hand and manual. And about five years ago, I saw this big shift of technology and kind of rebooted the firm. And, I, and, and one of the reasons that I rebooted it, to be fair, I've always been passionate about design. I've always been passionate about brand. I've always been passionate about people and psychology. And I looked around in the marketplace and there was professional services have always seemed to fall flat on why do they exist, right? What's the brand? Why? It's just a black and white website or a black and blue website with a bunch of handshakes and ties and whiteboards. And, you know, I was like, what if somebody built a brand that really expressed their authenticity about what they're passionate about, which was for me showing people how to use technology and being a part of amazing companies that want to leverage technology to further their missions. And so I spent a year trying to work with this amazing branding company that did the brands of like Calendly and Outreach and all these really established brands. And I just emailed them for over and over and over again for a year, begging them to just talk to me, just talk to me, just talk to me. You know, they're always saying, you can't, hey, if you have to ask, you can't afford it, right, buddy? You know, that kind of thing. But I was adamant that I wanted to build a really meaningful brand. And they eventually responded and agreed to finally reluctantly meet with me. And they met my passion too. And they met what I wanted to accomplish and, and build. And they agreed to work with us, which I thought was such a pivotal moment. And so we spent a year creating the brand pliancy that we have today. And they just interviewed me for hours and hours and hours about what do you care about and why? Why have you been doing this 15 years, you know, or I guess at that point it was like 10 years and we created this brand and that's when I relaunched the company. And when I relaunched the company, that's when it took off. We didn't change what we do really. We didn't change anything. We just communicated authentically to the world why we care and it attracted like-minded people that were just as passionate about getting technology into the hand of emerge, hands of emerging companies. And it just took off from there. Yeah, you know, we compete with really deep pocketed people. And we outpace them. We grow faster than them. We get better logos than them. We retain our clients longer. And it was all because we communicated what our values were and what we're about and attracted like-minded people. And so that's when we became Pliancy. Did their branding organization go, gosh, why did we take so long to talk to you? Yeah, they, I think they really enjoyed the process. Some of those people work here now. Oh. And yeah, some of those people I went out on their own and we work with them still as independents. We were their first kind of clients. So I think they were just so passionate. I mean, everyone, it's no different than your employees. Even service providers want to work with passionate people. There's just something about helping other people achieve meaningful things that just is a force to be reckoned with. When you meet somebody that wants to achieve their dream and as a friend or a family member, there's just something that makes you give them almost more than you give yourself sometimes. And I think that they just were so blown away by how passionate I was about this commoditized, boring industry that I was in, that they found it a really interesting challenge. And then secondly, when working with really creative people, you, if you've ever worked with an architect or an artist or anybody, spend more time finding them and less time telling them what to do. And what I mean by that is you go find somebody that creates things that you are blown away by every time. Their portfolio, 80% of it, you just love. If that's a home, if that's a brand, and then you do whatever you can to work with them and then communicate to them what you care about and then get out of the way. And they will create these astonishing brands that you just fall in love with. And I think they just respected how I understood the creative process. And you know, no different than employees, right? It's the same thing with employees, right? Tell them the why and then get out of the way. And so- mm -hmm. 
But that's really hard when you're doing brands and design, right? You know, everybody, oh, change it from that color to this color. Oh, I don't like that font or, oh, the logo, I don't like that. Or can we do this? But if you just get out of the way and then give them clear instruction, they'll create something impressive. And I think they'll enjoy working with you, even if your industry is boring. At least that's what I tell myself. Nice. There you go, listeners. Already there's a big boom in this episode so far with Marcus and the way that we're talking about things and getting out of the way. Just tell people the why and then get out of the way and let them get on with what they're really good at. And you may be surprised, but you will be blown away about what they go ahead and do too. So, yeah, fantastic. So, Marcus, how did you get into leadership? Yeah, I, I, I accidentally, you know, like most small business owners, you, you start by yourself and then eventually you have an employee and then you have two and then you have 10 and then you have 100. And as you're growing, you grow into leadership. So one of the things philosophies I always had is I'm not the CEO until I do the role of a CEO. And so I didn't give myself the CEO title until probably about a year ago when we were about maybe 80 employees. Until then, I always carried the role of what of the work I was doing. So I was a director of consulting for a year or two. And before that, I was a consultant for 12 years. Even when we had 30 employees, I still called myself a consultant. And there was no one on the website that had the title CEO. So I guess as I felt like I was doing that role better, I would move my title and responsibilities to align to that. But that's how I got into it. I just started a small company doing consulting and eventually grew it to the point where it needed leadership. And then I consumed just enormous amounts of content, podcasts such as this, and just wanted to understand what is a good leadership? What does it look like? And I wanted to understand perspectives. And I was very fortunate also to be surrounded by amazing leaders because I was working with really bold startup companies that were in life sciences and finance and they were previous founders of incredible companies. And while I'm over there helping them with technology, whatever it might be, building a laptop, I've got, you know, the, the cup to the wall with my ear, just listening to everything they're talking about, why are they invested in this company or that company and absorbing it. And it's been a journey for me to learn how to lead and I'm still learning today. Whereabouts in the world are you today? I am at home in Tokyo, Japan. I've lived in Tokyo for the last 20 years. Actually, just hit my 20, 20th anniversary last month. And wow. it's uh, home now. I've lived here longer than I ever lived in the town where I grew up, Bristol, Vermont. So, yeah, I think I'm turning Japanese. So you went from the US to, to Japan direct and then... It's, it's a bit of a story, but I went to Spain first. Oh. Then uh, later I ended up in South Korea and boy meets girl. Girl wanted to live in Japan. So I followed her here. It was her idea to come to Japan and we haven't left. We're, and we're still together. 20 years. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Konnichiwa. Yeah. You're very good. <laughs> Konnichiwa. Okay. So that's good. And I understand that you are a diehard Tokyo Swallows fan. Is that right? That's right. And they won the pennant again this year. The Swallows are a Japanese baseball team in the Central League. We won the Central last year and we won the Japan Series, which was the first time I ever witnessed that in my tenure, during my tenure in Japan. We just won the league again. We are the first night, uh, the first game of the playoffs that decides who goes to, it's basically the championship series for the Central League, who goes to the Japan Series. That game is tonight against Hanshin. And I'm a little nervous right now. So if I'm if I stutter or I, I miss on my words, it's not because I'm actually nervous to be in front of a mic. It's because I'm thinking you know, I'm a little nervous about the series that starts tonight. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, cool. Now tell us a little bit more about your background. You're an expert around 
something that's very special that you're going to share with us in a minute, author, podcast host as well. Just a little bit more about your background. I kind of cut my chops, at least in the beverage alcohol world, in brewing beer back when I was a teenager, actually. I was a home brewer. Parents found out about it. They got angry. I parlayed that couple years of quiet experience in my bedroom closet into a, an apprenticeship at the local microbrewery. And that one thing led to another. I ended up becoming the youngest commercial brewer in the United States. I was too young to drink what I was making, actually. And I then, fast forward many, many years, I end up in Japan. And I ran face first into Japan's indigenous spirits, which does not include Japanese whiskey. Japanese whiskey is a relatively recent iteration. It's about a century old, I guess. But Japanese shochu, S-H-O-C-H-U, and Japanese awamori, A-W-A-M-O-R-I, those are centuries old, 500, 600 years old. And they together outsell sake here in Japan. And I was fascinated by them. And nobody outside of Japan seems to know about them. And that led to a very, very deep rabbit hole that I am still tumbling down. And I don't think I'll ever find the bottom because there's about 5,000 brands of these spirits produced every year. And there's immense diversity in the category. And the world has no idea what's coming. It's I'm very excited to help bring these to a wider market. And that's basically what my businesses do today. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. And it's great to hear that, you know, that you've sort of going down that rabbit hole, but still going down that hole. I mean, that's really good. Anything else around your feet, you know, your background you like to share? Anything else? Um, I am also an educator. I, before I got into business, I was an academic, essentially. I, education is very near and dear to my heart. And both on the teaching side and on the receiving side, the, the studying side, I am a, I'm a lifelong student of all sorts of things. I'm a very curious, curious in many senses of that word. I'm kind of a character, but I'm also the type of person who, when they find out about something new, something that they don't necessarily have all the answers to, that just gets me going and I will not be stopped. Um, That's how I approached learning about these drinks, these spirits from Japan. It's how I've approached many things in my life. And I think education, and probably you'll hear me reference that many times today, education is so central to every, the way that I approach everything that it really can't be stripped from who I am as a person, really. And the business that you launched, what's the name of the business? The business is called Honkaku Spirits. Honkaku is a Japanese word meaning authentic or genuine. Yeah, very cool. And I also see from your bio that you're very passionate or you're passionate about giving back. There's a couple of foundations that you're supporting. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. We, I mean, we we really, the the organization in general and then me in particular, I suppose, or specifically, I do have a, a couple of foundations that are very near and dear to my heart. One, of course, is is one that's dedicated to my father who passed away suddenly back in 2006. And that's a, it's kind of cliched, but it's a reach for, Ray Pellegrini Reach for the Stars scholarship where we raise money to help Vermont kids, usually the first in their family to ever go to university to help fund their university life. And with the, there's a little bit of a like, you know, we would appreciate it if you could keep your talents in Vermont to a certain extent. And that's, it's not a requirement, but it is just to give opportunities to young 
young people from Vermont who may be doing something that's completely new for their family structure. So that's one. Another group is Minga, the Minga Foundation, which really works on improving women's lives and in various parts of the world. And I've been a big fan of that organization for a long time. And, you know, and then I, there's so much, there's so much more that I would love to be able to do. I just have to become a little bit more successful so, first so that I can uh, devote more time and resources to doing things like, ed, you know, education, protecting the planet, giving people more opportunities all around the world, that sort of thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that sort of activity. Yeah. And good on you for doing that. I think it's great. I think your dad's name was Ray. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And so kids in Vermont, they they get that kind of uh, help, but you really want them to stay in Vermont too to keep that kind of talent, not follow what you did and go into other countries. Um, exactly. yeah. <laughs> A little ironic. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't know if I really stole any talent from Vermont per se. I think I think that's absolutely true. I took a lot of passion with me and a lot yeah. of curiosity, but... And, and no, I'm very grateful to Vermont. I learned how to brew beer in Vermont. So, and that led me, that started me on this path to where I am today. How did your parents find it in the wardrobe? Or how did they know that you were doing, doing that in the wardrobe? So, to blow up or something? Or? <laughs> so my very close friend, Jesse Brisson, lives in Florida now. And I were, we had a, a little brand. Uh, for a couple of years, we were making brew almost every week and we would do it on Sunday because my my mother was a is a deacon in the church and my parents would dutifully leave the house on Sunday and we would have the kitchen to ourselves and one day my my father had a bit of a funny tummy and he came home early right while we were in the middle of boiling the wort and he was like what is that smell <laughs> and and uh you know that was then the you know all bets are off and he at first he was intrigued and then he was like wait a second I am the principal of the local high school. That's not true. At that time, he was the he was the principal of a neighboring town's junior high school. So I don't think that this is okay. I think this is illegal. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty highly. Well, it's not illegal, but it's definitely not something that you want to find in the newspaper in our small town. So he's like, this has to end. So that was the end of that. It was done like that. But I was able to then go and get an apprenticeship. I went to Otter Creek Brewing, which still exists to this day. I did not burn that place down, although I, I came close a couple of times. And I went to the CEO, Lawrence Miller, and I said, I want to do this. And he's like, you're not really the type that I expect to see in here wanting to learn how to make beer. And I was like, well, I do. And I've already made it. So he's like, I don't want to hear about it. Okay, you're hired. Let's, uh, let's get you. And I learned every aspect of that business. And then one fateful week, we lost both of our head brewers. Number one, he wrecked his back, was in traction basically for a couple months. So he couldn't lift bags of grain. And our number two brewer, same week, left the state to join the circus. I am not kidding. That is not a joke. He wanted to be a clown. So he was gone. And then all of a sudden... Lawrence Miller, the CEO, had to call an all-hands meeting. He's like, does anybody in this place know how to make beer? And little 17-year-old me was like, and that was the start of my brewing career right there. And I became the night brewer, and I was the most insufferable underage beer snob you've ever met in your life. I, you could not talk to 17-year-old me about beer because I was making stuff that people would line up to fill their growlers with, and I was so proud of my job. And I was so fascinated by making small batch 
whether it's food or whether it's drink, making small batch items with your hand, with your hands, I thought it's such a backbreaking experience. It takes so much concentration and so much precision, and I just loved it. And I've brought that with me to this day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world. 